the title of the world's most powerful people will soon be up for grabs. No, we're not talking about elections in the U.S. or Germany or what's happening behind the scenes with China's Communist Party. Since this is a podcast about global economics, you might guess that we are referring to, yes, the heads of the world's major central banks, the people who essentially control the price of money, which affects the prices of just about everything else people buy and sell. So who are these people and what's going to happen to them? Let's find out today on Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, global economics writer for Bloomberg View in New York. So, Dan, we spent a lot of time in our careers covering central banking. Uh, there have been times when it was pretty exciting, times when it was a bit boring. But what makes the next two years exciting? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about President Donald Trump's ability to reshape the Federal Reserve, given the vacancies that are coming up. But the much broader picture is that in the next couple of years, we could potentially see new heads of central banks in every major economy. Janet Yellen's term is up in February. Two months later, Hirohiko Kuroda's term finishes in April. In London, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney departs in 2019, as does Mario Draghi, head of the European Central Bank. And then there's the perennial speculation regarding the future of China's central bank government. Big questions. How many of them will keep their jobs? And if they depart, what will be their legacies and what kind of people will replace them? Well, fortunately, we have just the right person to discuss this. Uh, let's bring him in. Adam Posen is, is probably better situated than just about anybody to talk about this topic. He's been in the room as a policymaker at the Bank of England. He's worked at the Fed and co-authored a book on inflation targeting with former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke. He even wrote a book about Japan's economy. And since early 2013, he's been president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, where it's basically his full-time job to keep abreast of world economic affairs. Uh, Adam, thanks for joining us today on the road from London. No, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Daniel. Nice introduction. I hope to help. Adam, why should the average person in the U.S., the U.K., Germany, or Japan care about who's the head of their central bank? The fundamental reason is, even if not the most powerful economic person in the world, uh, he or she who runs one of these major central banks has a lot to do with the well-being of every household and every business in the economy. And if you're running the U.S. central bank and, to a lesser degree, the European central bank, you have an effect on the well-being and every household around the world, at least it's part of global markets. You, the people who run these central banks become important in two senses. First, they have to help set the agenda and, and move, they are committees mostly that run these banks, but then move the committee to making decisions day to day on what's important, what the state of the economy is, how to calm things down, how to speed things up. And they have some tools that approximately let them do this, like interest rates or in crisis times, purchases of government securities. The second way in which they matter is if, God forbid, there is a crisis, as the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe went through in 2008-2009, you want someone who is creative and flexible and strong enough to take action. 
King, off of that, the main suspense now, we might not have a crisis, but here in Washington, we're uh, pondering who's going to be head of the Federal Reserve once Janet Yellen's four-year term is up in February. What's your take on that? Do you think uh, she's going to be reappointed by President Trump, or is he going to be uh, is he going to pick someone else, like his economic advisor, Gary Cohn, uh, former Fed governor, Kevin Warsh? H- how do you see this uh, shaking out, and how is that going to affect the economy, depending on what happens? Well, your Bloomberg colleagues had a piece a couple weeks ago with sort of the six leading names that made sense to me. And so I'd put things in three categories. There's the probability, the possibility that Janet Yellen gets reappointed, and actually, contrary to what some people think, I think that would be the most hawkish, meaning the most likely to raise rates, the most likely to worry about inflation in the near term. But I think she has a very small chance of being reappointed because she's not just formerly a Democrat, but she's also someone who probably doesn't want to deregulate financial markets as much as Mr. Trump would like. So I put like a 10% or less chance on that. I put a 60 plus percent chance that uh, the president appoints one of the Republicans who's been active either at the Federal Reserve or around the Federal Reserve for a long time and advised previous presidents. That list would include John Taylor, Kevin Warsh, Glenn Hubbard. And I put like a 60% chance one of those three would be picked. But that still leaves you with another 30%, and this is what I worry about in particular. On that list, there were two names of people who are not economists, not even policy types, just sort of general bankers or business people. And during the campaign, President Trump talked a few times about putting a normal business person at the Fed. Our experience in history of doing that is very poor. Last time we tried that was a man named G. William Miller in the late 70s under Carter. And that turned into a near disaster for the U.S. in terms of high inflation and variable currency value. So I hope the president doesn't do that, but I can't rule it out. So two months later, the Bank of Japan governor's term expired. Now, since the banks gained independence in the late 1990s, no governor has been reappointed. It's also true that Japan's economy, while not awesome, is looking relatively good right now. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, I think, Daniel, you're absolutely right. Um, Of all the central banks you mentioned, I think... At the start, I think Governor Kuroda and the Bank of Japan are the one most likely to have a reappointment. Um, Governor Kuroda is a little bit on the older side, but he's still very active. And as you rightly point out, if you look at the data, um, including things like per capita income growth, which is basically the the best single measure we have of well-being for our macro economy, Japan's been doing okay. Uh, It was obviously thrown off base by the crisis in the North Atlantic, but it wasn't its own fault, and it was pretty resilient. There is a problem in Japan, and it's something of a puzzle, that inflation hasn't gone up more than it has so far. But Governor Kuroda has done pretty much everything that either the outside economist or Prime Minister Abe could have expected him to do on inflation, and I think he'd continue to do it. All right, that's two down. Let's go to where you are right now, London, Bank of England. We have Mark Carney. Uh, I don't think he's even British. Uh, You didn't (laughs) overlap with him directly in your service, but he has made his position clear, uh, I believe, on Brexit, and he's going to step down in 2019. What do you make of his tenure, and what do you think is going to happen once he leaves? What kind of person will replace him? 
Uh, Governor Carney is a very almost larger-than-life figure in, in the UK right now, but also in central banking circles. Um, he has also served as head of the uh, FSB, the Financial Stability Board, which is the global uh, coordinating body on financial regulation. Um, and he previously was governor of the Bank of Canada, and there are very, very few people in history who've been governor of two central banks. But as you point out, Scott, this is all taking place in the context of the British economy exiting the European Union, uh, which is a pretty disruptive, and most of us believe, including Governor Carney in a speech a week ago, pretty negative development for the UK economy. So, and there are people who get angry when he points that out. So he's going to have a bit of a rocky tenure for the remaining two years of his term. I think, despite that, if he announced that he wanted to be extended, I bet people would extend him here, but I think it is quite unlikely. He will have served a long period. But then it's very open season. Uh, the governor of the Bank of England seemed to alternate often between somebody promoting somebody inside who's been senior versus somebody who has direct relevant experience but external. Uh, it's possible they might go either way following Carney. They could promote one of the current deputy governors because Carney didn't come up through the bank, or they could promote someone from the financial sector because Carney did come from a central bank. I think there's uncertainty there. What do you think the effects will be on the UK economy and the approach to Brexit? You know, what, what would be your best guess on that? My best guess is that the Brexit is creating a lot of uncertainty, not just sort of about what happens in these famous negotiations between the UK and the European Union, but in fundamentally going forward, that it means the UK's place in the world economically and how much investment it will get and who it will trade with are fundamentally more uncertain for a long time. And so in the next couple of years and whoever succeeds Governor Carney after that, they're going to have to cope with the UK economy. It's more like the 1970s than the 1990s, meaning a lot more fluctuation in the exchange rate, which we're already seeing, a lot more up and down in the inflation rate, which again, we're already seeing, probably a slower average growth rate going forward, which Governor Carney spoke about recently at the IMF, and which I agree. It's going to be a time of tough choices. And um, the fear is just like when Carter appointed G. William Miller or, or Nixon appointed Arthur Burns in the 70s, that the government will try to pick somebody who is more to their taste and less about standing up to the tough things. We'll see what happens. Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn, once seen inconceivable, now seen entirely possible. Is that the factor X in this discussion? Yeah, thank you for making me spell it out, Daniel. Um, I mean, I don't have terribly much partisan preference for the current government of Theresa May versus the potential government of Jeremy Corbyn or their associated versions of their parties. But I do think given um, leader of the opposition Corbyn's repeated statements of his beliefs about the economy, that they could potentially end up with someone rather strange uh, if he's picking who's the next governor of the Bank of England. There are good economists who support the Labour government and the Labour Party in the past and, and good policymakers. I'm not saying it's impossible, but as was seen in some of his remarks on the economy in general, having to do with what he calls people's QE, which sometimes sort of cites me, or uh, renationalizing certain industries, these are things that are not necessarily bad ideas, but they're indicative of a worldview 
that's probably very interventionist and probably very big change from the current way the Bank of England operates. Next up on the ticket, European Central Bank. Mario Draghi's term ends 2019. He, unlike the others, is term limited. And this is also subject to the vagaries of EU politics, the bargaining. What do you think is going to happen there? I think that's exactly right, Daniel. I mean, we, people have to recognize not only is it 100% certain that Draghi does not continue as president of the European Central Bank, but that the chances of a big change are, are quite large. Uh, this is partly because, in some sense, Draghi has arguably had the most difficult job of any of the central bank governors, because what you referred to as the vagaries of the European Union, you have a very, very large committee, 27, excuse me, not 27 members, but um, 17 euro members plus six members of the board um, running the ECB, and he has to marshal that. And there are some very, very deep ideological divides and national divides in Europe over how the ECB should respond to the persistent unemployment in Southern Europe, how they should respond if there's another crisis in Portugal or Greece, how seriously should they take the target of 2% inflation as a cap rather than as a long-term average. So in a sense, this is the most, as with all due respect to my friends at the Bank of England, this is the most consequential appointment because it could have the biggest shift. The German government, the German people have, in a sense, the most voting power because they're the biggest economy and the most influential in Europe. And they have, to date, uh, not insisted that a German be the head of the ECB, even though the ECB, or perhaps because the ECB is in Frankfurt and because it's modeled on their former central bank or their current central bank, but the no longer running things central bank, the Bundesbank. Anyway, long story short, the real question is, do they appoint the current head of the Bundesbank, Jens Weidmann, to succeed Draghi? And that would be, to make an American analogy, that would be taking someone more extreme on rules and anti-inflation and supposedly hawkish like John Taylor, but more extreme than that to replace Janet Yellen. And that's a very big swing with potentially very big consequences. And does the German election we've just had play into this at all? In my view, it makes it slightly more likely that you get Weidmann. Um, I think Chancellor Merkel is a consummate politician, as we've seen, despite the election results. She's very much in the sense of a lot of other top politicians that she, everything is a bargain. I mean, there are certain moral lines she won't cross, like with Russia or migrants. But beyond that, everything is a bargain. Uh, you can trade off stuff. So she's not going to come out early and say, I insist that the Weidmann or a German be the, be the ECB president. What she's going to do is wait until late in the game when Draghi's term is nearly up and see what she can get for it. And if somebody makes her an offer, well, we want the Banque de France president instead, and Brick will say, well, what are you going to give me? And we'll see. But the ultimately, the election, I think, makes it more likely that she pushes a bit at the end for Weidmann because then she's giving something to the so-called liberals, the Free Democratic Party and the right wing of her party in Germany. She's pushing a German forward who will be tougher, in theory, on the Greeks and the Portuguese and the Spanish, and especially the Italians. And so I think she mildly favors that, but it's more that she will earn points with her own domestic constituencies without having giving anything up by doing that. One last question, Adam. Going back to where we started, 
How much power do these central bankers really have? Or are they hostage to global economic forces that are really bigger than them? I think, though, it's a bit dicey, Scott. I kind of make an analogy to a general. You know, a a general, if you're in charge of a big army, a big military, and it's well-equipped, and your enemy isn't anywhere near as big, you will usually win. And some generals will win more or less quickly with more or less losses. And there's been this sense, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, with people like Greenspan at the Fed or Marvin King at the Bank of England, that central bankers could just make things happen. But it's really, they were up against much smaller armies. I don't mean literally in size, but the challenges they were up against, in part through luck, were just not as great. So in the end, you can't fight the Fed. If the Fed wants something to happen, over time, they generally will be able to make it happen. But there's a lot more uncertainty about which tools work, how dependable they are, how much you have to do than there used to be. And also, like with generals after the Vietnam War, with central bankers after the global financial crisis, there's a lot less trust in them. Uh, They're experts. They're technocrats. They mostly want to do the right thing for the right reasons. But understandably, the public's not as willing to just turn over the fate of their, in this case, economy to them without check. And that's part of why particularly... The Bank of Japan or the Bank of England is going to have an easier ride because their publics, for whatever reason, seem to have more faith despite their respective crises in the central banks. Whereas in the U.S. environment, the Federal Reserve is very much under suspicion in Congress and in some parts of the country politically. And I'm not saying that's justified. I'm saying it's understandable. And that's the reality. So like generals after Vietnam, central bankers after the crisis are going to have to try to bring people on board and not be too aggressive because they may lose the support they need. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. And in the meantime, we'll wait for the Ken Burns documentary on the central bankers. (laughs) With an audience, one-tenth of the Ken Burns audience. Sounds great. Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And please let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you are at Moss underscore Eco. And Adam, our guest, is at, at Adam Posen. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.